Hello and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm Laurel Thompson, and not only does it feel like it's been a long time, it has been a long time. And I'm sorry about that. Um, I have been very, very busy, and at least I have a lot to show for myself. So I hope you can appreciate that, and you'll go and check out all of the cool stuff that I have been creating and up to. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about it, but I really want to get into this interview that I've been sitting on since December. So um, so I'll be brief, and then at the end of the podcast, I'll give you more information and links and stuff like that. So I think I have mentioned before that uh, I was recording a CD, and so I completed that at the end of February and released it and uh, went on tour with a fabulous Canadian singer-songwriter, Dan Frechette, out of Winnipeg. And uh, we toured around California. And um, in preparation for that tour, I also overdubbed about 30 violin um, violin and vocal tracks to, to his original songs. And all of those are available for free download, uh, as well as my CD. It's now up on Bandcamp. It's called Light and Shadow. And you can search Laurel Thompson for that. Um, Facebook's another good way to, to keep up with uh, all that kind of stuff as well. And um, yeah, the tour went really well. Um, it's a great collaboration. I'm really excited about it. And we're actually going to be touring quite extensively in Canada this summer, starting in May. So check out my calendar uh, on my website if you're going to be anywhere in in the area, in Canada, uh, Western Canada, um, in Central Canada, and um, maybe you can come and catch me there. Otherwise, um, looking at, we're already booking uh, the kind of the West Coast again um, in uh, August and September, and uh, yeah, we're just kind of going from there. So, um, this, this podcast, uh, is going to be an interview with, uh, Bauman Saram, AKA B violin. And he is based down in San Diego and, uh, he's a violinist. He's a composer, he's a producer, and he contacted me and actually had me on his podcast, the philosophical beat podcast, which you can find on iTunes a while back. And, um, and that was really fun. And, um, he, He's he's just a great guy, and I feel like his music is really coming from a heart-centered place. And I, I think, you know, most of us, well, a lot of us anyway, probably people who are listening to this podcast anyway, because it's my intention, you know, are trying to find a way to to really, you know, connect with audiences and to in some way maybe use music for healing. And I definitely think that that B violin is 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 using music in this way. And he calls it conscious music or um, you know, it's kind of a a fusion of of different styles. But his background is Middle Eastern. So he's definitely infusing a lot of ethnic influences and jazz and um, you know, his um love of uh, different jam bands and stuff like that. And, uh, so, so it's really a unique style and I really enjoyed talking with him particularly about improvisation and his background in, um, playing and, and performing and growing up. And, uh, it's just always really interesting for me to hear other people's story and their ideas. And, um, gosh, we interviewed kind of late in the evening and, uh, after like an hour and a half, we're realizing, gosh, we better go to bed. Like, <laughs> so, so I felt like we really hit it off and, and, um, and that was great. And, and I'm sorry, I couldn't have gotten this out before, before now. Um, cause I really would have liked to share it with you, um, back 
you know, shortly after I recorded it, but I immediately got into just so much stuff and had several podcasts already kind of in the, in the queue lined up. So anyways, so it goes. And, um, we're going to have a track from him at the very end of the podcast. So definitely stick around for that. And, uh, yeah, that's it for now. So go and, uh, if you'd want to check out his site while you're listening, you can go to beviolin.com. That's just B as in boy, V I O L I N. And, um, otherwise, yeah, just enjoy. Hello, Batman. Welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. Hey, Laurel. How are you? Good. Did I get that pronunciation right? <laughs> get Persian points. My mom would be. Uh, my mom would say, "Come over for some dinner and rice, and you'd be oh, great." Nice dinner and rice. Yeah, because rice is our appetizer too. Oh, nice. So, where did you grow up? Uh, grew up first five years uh, on this planet in my hometown, home hometown, I should say. There's there's a couple of hometowns for me. Um, Tehran, Iran. Okay. So I, uh, about four, four and a half. Then we moved to Philadelphia where I was till I was, you know, 25 years old. So tw- good 25 years of my life in Philly. Nice. So let's dive right on in here. So I'm wondering classical versus Middle Eastern music. That's like listening. There's these obvious differences that we hear, but talk to me a little bit about some stylistic and technical differences that maybe the average person isn't aware of. Like how, how do we relate this to violin playing? Um, I think, you know, middle, middle Eastern's a little bit broad. So I can like Persian violin and be fake talking about Indian violin, but that would be me faking it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this is my mind's completely kind of, um, matured on this topic because I thought it used to be that, um, um, you know, that training is training and like in classical, it's all about the tech and obviously the bow hand and sure. Oh, and, and all of that. And that is, I, if you're classically trained, that's a big focus. If you had to save all the focuses, that's a big focus, right? Right. The technique. Yeah. In middle Eastern music, and I think Indian violinists, I think, would say, tell you that not technique in the way we think of it in the classical world, but the technique of, in Persian classical violin, tuning your ear to the fact that that B that you're used to in Western music is not the B of, of a Persian violinist, mm. between a B flat and a B. Hmm. And, it, and, and so some people think, well, it's just about stretching the note. No, we have to like adjust our ears that that's now home of mm. like be so it's funny most of the time you would find a persian classical violin teacher focusing on that and not so much time on bow hand and because if you look and this is where i've matured like at least in my opinion if you youtube any persian violinist or any middle eastern violin i'm gonna say 70 percent of the time you're not gonna notice great technique i mean mm-hmm. their hands are totally collapsed for some of these notes sure the only way to reach the note. There's not that nice space they teach you in class, you know. Yeah. And so I, that to me is the biggest difference. So having these microtones that it sounds like, I mean, in some cases, would you say that, I mean, we think about a half step and our fingers in first position anyway are touching. I mean, once we get up to really high positions, we might have to 
move a finger out of the way in order to set the next finger if it's just such a small half step or even a whole step if we get really, really far up there. But I'm wondering, like even in first position, it sounds like for classical Persian music, it might that might even be the case in first position. Is that true? Only in first position, but wow. you're at a disservice if you've come from Western classical, which is uh-huh. what which is what happened to me. Well, it was it was twofold. Started out with Persian classical training when I was four, but okay. we had we had to leave the country. I got four months of that training. I got, it was nothing. Yeah, sure. America classical training conservatory in Philadelphia. Well, now you're inundated with that. Great, and that makes you a great violin player. So yep. then, for for <laughs> for colleges, like, well, if you're kind of burnt out on Mozart, there's this 85 year old violin teacher in Philly where we lived at the time, and uh-huh. he he literally teaches one or two students tops. He's willing to teach you. Are you down? And I said, sure. I'm I'm always down for trying, but I had no idea what I was in for. And he was that classic 85-year-old Miyagi-style teacher of like Persian violin, of the karate kid. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was very little like, you know, it was just get to work. And from his perspective, he, he's never touched a note of Mozart. He knows of Mozart, but he's never touched a note of Mozart with his hands either. Right. So, he just didn't understand how I couldn't pick up our B. <laughs> yeah. So that was my my next question. Like, so even though you grew up at a very young age and you were, you know, in you know in the Middle East, you were listening probably to that type of music, or maybe not. I don't know. So it sounds like your ear was was pretty much just trained to Western classical music. That was the dominant. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's why my music is, and it only it, it takes talking to a genius like you, I think, to well, thank you. <laughs> so you talk sometimes to like people who get it, and then you realize stuff about yourself. And I think that's exactly because so, I was trying to explain to someone how why it is that the best way I can describe my original stuff is fusion. Yeah, and exactly why because like four years old classical Persian violin, then Baroque and then back to some Middle Eastern stuff. Well, that's why my stuff's a mix. It's totally a mix. You know, it was never one straight path. Mm. In your bio, you talk about how your family was exiled and you just mentioned that. Um, I know that I have a lot of listeners in the Middle East and I was just wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about that experience living there, um, if you remember, you know, or through your parents and what effect that might have had or might have still on your music today. It is, it is without a doubt, not in a negative way, just completely beautiful and positive. It drives every note I play. It drives Mm. every minute I go to a gig, even if I'm tired and I've got my day job the next day, I've just come to accept that. And that's because, I mean, in, in in Iran, when when at least my first memories of it, although I left when I was pretty young, it is an understatement to say like there's two instruments which describe Persian classical music: piano, violin, uh, three, and mm-hmm. the the uh, the dumbek, which is mm. called just called the zarb z a r b over there the 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 lamb skinned dumbek. And so that's, I was in on, that was what was playing all the time. Then, you know, we came to, then we came to America. But, um, so it, it drives everything because that's kind of that. I heard like the last few notes of that style of music before we came to America. 
and then it was just chaos. Um, and I guess exiled isn't the right word as so much as because if we use that word, then there's a lot of families that were like us. You know, there was a revolution in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you didn't want to be part of that revolution, there was a very small window for you to to, to leave. I or, see. So you were a part of it. Now, that's not political talk. That's just my memories. And the, it, it's funny you said that piece together what my parents have told me in broken stories. Yeah, sure. That's what it was. And for me, it was really interesting, too, because um, I think part of that, um, part of the addiction I have to music, everyone has a different addiction to their art. And I think that's part of, uh, there's definitely a part of Iran in that, which is as the story goes, again, what I pieced together with my dad and an aunt and my mom, because um, these things I don't remember. I think I was too young. But yeah, when violin, Persian violin is all you hear, um, my artist here early, I guess, caught it and said, well, that's what I want to learn. Hmm. I didn't want to learn. Piano. I didn't want to learn. Well, that's not a problem in a non-revolutionary country, right? You, somebody can come to Laurel and take violin lessons here. The thing sure. Granted, that are amazing to know that you've been part of is when the revolution hit. That kind of thinking was thought to be a Western-type thinking. Hmm. Take music lessons. Well, you don't need to take music lessons. This will now be the music. <laughs> I see. Religious chanting music and, and then that dominate because it was all, you know, religion stuff. So my mom's like, it's a revolution. Where am I going to get a violin teacher from? And again, as the storybook story goes, she went and found some guy, some like 80-year-old guy and He's, you know, he at first when when asked about coming and teaching a three, three and a half year old <laughs> revolution's like, uh, I can't do that. Yeah. But apparently, thanks to my mom, as the story goes, it turned into, OK, but, you know, it's got to be on the DL. It's gotta <laughs> be, I'm just coming for tea. Yeah. Wow. So tea sessions were had and that's it. And I didn't get to stay with that long because we had to come to America. Right. So. so I, in summary, it, it's a long answer to your great question. I realized maybe even not longer than a month ago that that's it. That, of course, is what drives me. It's what has kept me in the game. No matter what level of success or whatever, that's my addiction is because it was almost like taken away from me. Sure. It was that close to not being a possibility. I mean, and and not just you know because i mean a lot of people it's like they don't have the money to pay for the violin lessons or the violin or whatever but like the whole culture being against like in a sense against you in that dream like i mean that's really incredible an aquarius because uh you know we're known to float and kind of not be grounded and and i'm starting to find out i'm the, not that i believe in signs that much i'm just saying that yeah. for- but, you know, I think I know a lot of, at least from my Aquarius, I'm, I'm definitely rebellious and I've accepted that. I'm not like rebellious, like, you know, hardcore in any law-breaking way. I just mean against, it's funny, I still am rebellious against society norms, any society yeah. norm. And that's exactly why. It was because they were trying to say, now this is the music. <laughs> it's like, well, no, this is the music that I want to play. And I, yeah, I can totally see how that would drive you. And even in America where, I mean, we are blessed with, you know, I mean, you can just play whatever you want and put it up on YouTube the next day, <laughs> you know, and no one's going to come after you. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers if this remains the case, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, but I could see how, you know, just having that 
be so close to not being the case for you. How, yeah, you'd want to do it even more. Let me emphasize that in some discussions with some good friends uh, backstage before some shows and, and afterwards, you know, one of the commonalities we at least piece together and, you know, I can only talk about the perspective of which I grew up in, but obviously we're not the only ones, right? There's mm-hmm. many countries still going through revolution have or will be that isn't it interesting as cliche as it sounds, what is the first thing when you're trying to suppress, what is one of the first things people either change or take away? It's art. Yeah. It's why? Because that changes people, that motivates people, that enlightens people. It takes them to a different place. All the stuff that we know music does, any kind of art. Let's make it generic. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great point. It's, and it's very true. I mean, we look at, you know, like China and, you know, their cultural revolution. And yeah, it's, I think particularly music, I mean, because that's what I know about. That's what you know about. That's like music can really express things that we can't express in words. And it can really go deep into people. I mean, you've probably had the experience of listening to a piece of music and absolutely crying. You know, don't know exactly why, you know, there's not necessarily a conscious thought that's attached to those tears, but it's moving people and it, you know, it can get people inspired. It can get people riled up. You know, it's just, yeah, if we're trying to create order and structure and um, it's not necessarily um, the safest, the safest thing to have around. (laughs) That's what's beautiful about it. And that's what you learn as you get older in the business of music, too, is that, you know, in some crazy way, accepting that it doesn't matter if you're not on the front of, you know, Viola magazine or if you're not on the front of MTV or whatever your gauge of success is. Right. Truly, every, every musician, whether playing in a bar or a coffee house or on stage for 40,000 people, you're sending out frequencies mm-hmm. and undeniable that frequencies are what we are, we're electricity, all that stuff. So, of course, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're not standard you know, it's not a standard experience. There's a reason for that. Um, yeah. The YouTube thing you talk about, I, I think my list is now 50 favorites on my bookmark on my web browser of <laughs> many times I've seen them. And, and I tried to actually over probably analyze this. I was like, am I getting moved as a musician? Is that what's hitting me? Or am I getting moved as a person? And I'm starting to find out the musician part's going away because I think that's what you first it was amusing. Oh my God, look at that technique. Now that still blows me away with some of these, some of this talent you, you see on something like YouTube. Right. You're inspired by something someone's doing and, and it, yeah, I, I totally get it. It relates directly back to your technique and like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to get there? Yeah, totally. So, um, uh, you know, this, the latest one I just saw was just before we started talking, someone sent it to me and, um, it's a it's just a solo guitar player playing this Gautier song hmm. on the guitar. So he's not singing. And it's mm-hmm. that technique that I'm not a guitarist, but it's that technique where they're constantly playing bass with the thumb but keeping a melody going with their middle fingers. Yeah. Not a guitarist. It's I'm not blown away by that because I want to do that. I'm blown away that a human being is doing that with their fingers and now all of a sudden it's like, wow, what can I do to completely expand what I do? Whatever yeah. it is husband being a father being a violinist whatever the case may be yeah. so it's really what you say of course you can expand people and it can be in many ways 
Well, and so tell me about conscious love music. You have that as a tagline on your site, and I'm curious what what you mean by that. Uh, if I could tell you, I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the sound of it. <laughs> that is is a musician. We talk about it, so let's joke about it more. That's a musician that doesn't have managing or manager or marketing. And if an artist <laughs> sells, we're talking about an artist, aren't we? Oh, definition, um, uh, paranoid about their art, completely uh, um, uh, self-defamating uh, all the time. Or <laughs> right? So you second, I have had so many taglines, I can't even tell you. That must be tagline number 50 because I'm never happy with it. It's because of the identity crisis of my life and <laughs> my music. I just can't. <laughs> this now I'm this now um so the latest one is I was just like there is in all seriousness there is a movement of what's called conscious music um MC Yogi uh, Michael Franti is now okay yeah yeah and what happened is this is now starting to merge with um what was in Indian terms kirtan music music played for meditation and yoga classes where it used to be just a guru on, uh, on a harmonium mm-hmm. that's grown into this field of what's called conscious music because now you got singer songwriters going well instead of singing my song all the time or something I wrote I can do Indian Sanskrit and still have a band rocking doing it so now that's grown into this like um, exaggeration of Indian kirtan music and but they're all about being conscious their lyrics are conscience conscious it's about simple love and peace let's just say love and peace and doing yoga all the time (laughs) (laughs) awesome well yeah you were talking about you know seeing different artists like seeing different youtube videos and and you're talking about like the energy that's that's coming through and kind of as you get older um i guess having having that that experience it sounds like maybe move you in, in a deeper way than than in the past in that you know, that's something that I've, I've recognized as I've gotten older as well. And, you know, really wanting to set up that frequency that you spoke of, uh, in my performances, or if I'm doing a recording, or if I'm, if I'm teaching a student, you know, where it's like, it's, 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 there is intention there, there is the energy that, that I want to share with the world. And it's, um, I think it can be really important. I, is that, is that kind of where you were going with that? Um, as far as the tag, well, as the tag, I mean, you know, that that's sort of where I, where I kind of place that. Yeah, I, you know, it sounds like it's, it's something you're working with. <laughs> but um, kirtan stuff is yeah. is popular, and I started realizing with my music when I look back at some of the lyrics I wrote, I'm like, oh, like I mean that you know I have a song that's from like poetry of Rumi, nice. and I'm like. That's what I was writing five years ago. I think I have a place that might go actually get these lyrics. So in comes that kind of tagline. Exactly. I see. Awesome. Awesome. So you do a lot of improvising. That's that's what I gather listening to your music and watching some of your YouTube videos. And um, is that is that something, first of all, that that's very common in in Persian music? Like, is it? 
is that something like, you know, I mean, I guess similar to like East Indian music where there might be certain melodies that you would learn, but then essentially, you know, there's a lot of room for that own personal expression or um, is it just sort of the fusion that you've created here in the West? Um, I think the the kind of improvising I do with my band mm-hmm. and I like to play with, I actually think is closer to and, and not quoted from, but the palette of um, uh, Fish, Grateful Dead, Dave Matthews, and not so much Grateful Dead, the crazy stuff, but that, look, here are the, in the Western music, here are the five chords of the bridge. We want a guitar solo here. Band, let's find a groove. Okay, now when the soloist is building the solo, we'll build with him. When he's bringing it down, we'll bring it down. Mm. I think we're more like that. More jam bandy, sort of. I think so, but yeah. I... I to say that word because I think it gives an essence of like fooling around. There's a <laughs> way that we've now experienced with at least with our music um, that there's uh, it's thoughtful jamming. Yeah, <laughs> nice. What I'm at, in other words, our biggest motto in the band is uh, we we use this all the time backstage before we go on. Remember, two people cannot solo at the same time. It is not possible. So you get a message across that everyone else stay at home. When you stay at home, that's building a palette of what's called groove. Yeah. Now the person soloing, whether it's guitarist or violinist or doomback player, truly stands out. Yeah. So you yeah. have a nice uh, way to trade off. And do you have certain signals you give each other or is it pretty much set when you go and, you know, you've been practicing and, okay, you're going to take this solo and then you're going to take the next one. And, or is it just sort of, you give the nod and. It's a, it's a mix, but yeah. we're a confused bunch because I'm the leader. So <laughs> to at some points sing, remember the next verse I'm supposed to sing and my next violin part coming up while I'm holding my violin. <laughs> and if it's a good night, I'll remember to let the drummer know about a measure or two ahead at minimum um, that his break is coming up because tonight we're doing it differently. I decided to add an extra verse. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. It's kind of organic. It sounds like. Conscious to at least let them know when the next thing is coming, which is, I think I, I will throw this in there because we've had a couple of really nice compliments that I think that is from jazz. And I do have two players who that's kind of where their ear comes from. So, mm-hmm. I mean, people think of jazz and then, a lot of people sometimes think that's just that crazy stuff that they can't follow. Yeah, there's some experimental jazz out there, absolutely. And there has been for a long time. But there's some jazz that's in that category. But if you listen to it, yes, there is a structure. There's definitely improvisation. But without the house around it, the solo doesn't mean anything. Right. So so first of all, um, so what instruments are you playing with in your band? Primarily violin and and sing. Um, only as a necessity do I pick up the guitar acoustic for maybe three songs. Okay. For, and so what but, what's everyone else playing? The makeup of the band these days it's gone through its Santana type transformation. So <laughs> vision number four of the Mystic Groove. Um, it's uh, Doombeck, uh, a Doombeck player who also plays uh, bongos and some percussion toys. Full kit drummer who's got a hybrid kit. So it's a snare, kick, high stand, but then to his left, instead of a tom, a big tom, he has a djembe, West African instrument. Um, so that gives us a little more West African-y type sound when we need it. And then there's my guitar player, Reverend Stickman, who's <laughs> my 
years. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, that gives me a good picture of, of what you're working with. And that's awesome. And, and tell me the name of your band again. Uh, B violin is me, my quote unquote artist name and by the mystic grooves. Awesome. Awesome. Do you guys have a website? Eviolin.com. Yeah. Haven't had self or has not had time to build the other websites. So just sticking with the Eviolin.com. Nice. So with the jazz influence, that kind of takes me to the question of, so you're improvising. Are you, are you basing your improvisations off of like these melodic themes that are set up for each piece or like, how do you, how do you approach your improvisation? Every original song of mine, um, it didn't used to. So some of the album versions kind of, you know, you know how it is as an artist. You look back, you're like, wow, that really didn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Later playing it with the band, it now has matured into 90% of our songs. The melody that the song starts out with, it's very, most of mine are instrumental. So they're very compositional. So some of them have, um, uh, a head, like a jazz player would talk about a head, which is, you know, six, seven, maybe eight notes. Um, the more Middle Eastern compositions have longer, I've written these longer melodies. And the way we use those are as hooks for I'm done my solo. So it's kind of a baton game. When you're ready to solo, you're in is, hey, I'm playing the hook. Okay, it's his turn. You solo. When you want to tell the band I'm done, ready to go to part B, you play that hook again or that uh-huh. That's kind of what we've done, and we haven't invented it. That's just what works best for us, which is, which again, from what I've heard from actually different players who play with me, they say that's very much a jazz mentality. So it's great. Interesting. I've never really thought about that before, but now I'm kind of realizing that, yeah, I've definitely, I've seen that happen or listened to that happen. And it's like, wow, like, I don't know how they're signaling each other to go back in, but that seemed just totally seamless. And that must be it. That's awesome. (laughs) It and the the ones that have done it longer, like you know, imagine playing with the same people for like thirty years. You don't think that you just have this unbelievable unspoken communication. Of course you do. Oh, so of course, yeah. <laughs> really listen, and it's not just in jazz. Name name a band that might not be jazz, and they jam like this, which is, oh, son of a gun! They didn't play the full melody. He played half of it, and the band knew that that was actually the last half of the measure. So we're ready to move on. I mean, like mm. it deep it gets really deep that's awesome so when you compose what are what are the different subjects or themes or emotions i don't know where do you where do you get your inspiration the instrumental songs of mine um i think all in the beginning i think they were a little more slower paced and more um classical compositional i think the later stuff and it's just because it just started grabbing my ear is um stuff that you can one of my prime uh today these days one of my primary motivations is what's the least number of people it would take to play this groove and it would still sound good because sometimes you write something at least this is the way my mind works Mm -hmm. sometimes you write something and you're like yeah this will sound great with a six piece (laughs) (laughs) And the and the horn player would, but then uh, now these and that's the way I used to write. Now it's like, could my guitar player and I, me on acoustic violin, him on acoustic guitar, could we pull this off at a campsite and have people think it's an actual song? We could. Okay, now we've got a melody. 
you know, something that's simple enough, something that's definitely got, um, even though it might be an odd meter, a backbeat, so someone can feel the pulse, even if it's in five, that there's a way to feel that five. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. That's, that's where I'm at these days. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, especially where, you know, I think music and particularly performing live performance of music is going. I mean, I don't know about you, but it just seems like it, it just gets harder and harder to, to get paid to, to, to do our, to do our thing. And, you know, the fewer people that we have involved, the, the more each person gets and the easier it is just to have everyone be on the same page and show up to rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. Those loop, that's why the loop pedals are very popular these days. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so now do you play, are you just playing electric violin at this point? Or you play acoustic as well or? Um, my band, it's all electric because that's just how the band was born was uh-huh. with me. Um, Lately, if there's an Irish band that wants me to sit in on a gig or try one song out, although I don't play Irish violin, maybe they have charts or whatever. Sure. Um, that stuff I'll do acoustic, although it's just so rare because I have yet to find a way to mic uh, my acoustic violin and be happy with the sound, even mm-hmm. with an equalizer pedal. It's just mm-hmm. I, I reached a saturation point, and mm-hmm. it was not the acoustic. It was the way it was plugged in. Mm just was never happy with the balance of lows and highs. So mm. um, with my band, it's electric, but there is hints and rumors that probably in 2013, we're going to actually try to peel back. And, and that involves me finding, you know, researching the latest pickup in, and, uh, you know, they want to hear it because my guitar player has written two songs, which are, can only be described as like Eastern European Celtic, I guess. And I don't know Ooh. where he, inspiration from but these originals are unbelievable compositions i mean one of them has lyrics but one of them doesn't and i'm sitting there you know learning this this guy who's been so devoted devoted and loyal as a friend and as a musician for nine years and you know we've all been through the ego game so if he has written something that sounds good with our band even though it's his song of course you bring that to the table i don't care that my name is on the banner who cares yeah (laughs) so that I'm like, we are never playing this live until I have an acoustic violin again, because it just, you can't honor that music with an electric. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. That sounds like really awesome music. I'd love to hear that. You'll have to definitely send me a link when, when you have something recorded <laughs> with it should be about 10 years. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, so was there any particular things other than that's just sort of how the band formed that informed your choice to go electric. I assume that you, you know, you were obviously doing classical violin as a child and you're probably obviously playing an acoustic instrument. Where, when, when did you make that switch and why? Uh, 18 years old, freshman year of college at Villanova. I had quit classical. I just, I, I had had it with it and I just had this, it was the end of that relationship at that phase with it. Okay. Bring my violin to college, my acoustic. And then I met, to this day, my best friend in the world, best man at my wedding, uh, Chris, Chris Rowland, um, one of these just prodigy piano players and literally the nicest human being you'd ever want to meet. And uh, someone in the dorm had heard that, you know, I played violin. And they're like, oh, you know, there's a guy in the hall who plays piano. Went over to Chris. Long story short, we go to the student lounge. He's like, well, 
um, do you have your violin with you? I said, no, it's at home. He's like, go get it. And I lived close to college. So I went and got it. And he were in the student lounge at a tune piano. He's like, well, I'll just play, I'll play something. He's like, you don't worry about what it is. I'm just going to play it. And he's a jazz piano player. So he just like started playing really simple jazz stuff. Ain't misbehaving, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he goes, all right, you're classical. All right, I'll tell you what, play anything in E flat major. Just play anything in E flat major. He goes, I know you have plenty of compositions that <laughs> make it harder. And born was the fire of improv and non-classical music and game over. Mm. Uh, we, we started writing songs together. I'd go to these really bad open mics at 18 years old, sneaking in because they, you know, I'm 18. I can't be in a bar in Philly. Right. Uh, Open mic host would kind of just sneak me in and they, you know, they were really, you know, open, good open mics are just a community of encouragement for people starting out. Um, and, you know, many of people are born from that, that are, that are big names today. And um, so that's when it all changed. We, we were in band after band. And then after the third band, I was like, this, this, this feedback problem every gig is just not happening. <laughs> so I uh, bought my first electric then, which was the Yamaha. Um, the Yamaha silent electric violin and then was the path of electric for me. And so what do you play now? Um, 90% electric. It's my Zeta, uh, it's a company that's unfortunately not around anymore. Um, it's the Boyd Tinsley model from Dave Matthews, which has the, um, mandolin pegs, which are, uh, stay in tune much better than normal. Peg. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So four string, five string, the four string have okay. I haven't, I'll be honest, you have not had the courage for five string. Yeah. A lot of, especially, God, there's just some unbelievably talented jazz female violin players that are just doing things with the five string that I just, I didn't know you could do with the violin. And the fact that they're doing it on five strings is incredible. Yeah. I've, I've definitely considered, I've definitely considered trying it, but yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, both, yeah, in the fiddle world too, there's a lot of people going that route and. Um, could be very convenient, but yeah, definitely seems like a totally different brain challenge. <laughs> well, as well, right, Laurel? Say what? Viola as well, right? Or you did? I do play viola as well. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think it would be quite as as much of a stretch. Um, but yeah, yeah. I you know I really like my acoustic instruments, so there you go. <laughs> so do you have any advice for people who maybe they're playing? acoustic now but they really want to go electric i mean i can think of some students who along the way it's like what do you think about electric you know especially the 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 male students (laughs) get to be about 16 and they it's like well i should have picked the electric guitar but i put in all this time on violin maybe i can go to electric violin (laughs) as far as advice yeah i would um the first thing i would say just from my experience is um don't expect to you know pick it up, whatever, order it, have it in your hands and go play a gig or anything like that because it is adjustment. Um, you, you will find yourself um, in some ways feeling some things are easier with electric, but then you're going to find other things are harder at first and then you'll just get used to them. Um, so, so like what things, what things do you have to get used to? What things are different? Fiberglass violin, you know, there's, there's nothing hitting back. It's not going through wood mm. through handmade wood with some you know luthier's beautiful energy it's a piece of glass or whatever a plastic a fiber fiberglass so yeah. there's no energy coming back at you the way 
you know, just an acoustic just cries with one note, you know what I mean? Um, or in, 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 uh, in third position, anything in third position on an acoustic is just so beautiful. On electric, you're, you just have to understand that's not what you, once you accept, here it is, once you accept that, that you're not going to get that kind of energy back from an electric mm-hmm. and just learn to work within those parameters, it'll be a great thing. But that's the biggest adjustment, I would say. That's interesting. And you're talking about third position. I'm wondering if it has to do with the sympathetic vibrations of the open strings being, you know, you're, you're playing all of those octaves. So we get, if we get those notes perfectly in tune, those first fingers in third position, we are getting, we're setting off the resonance of the whole instrument if it's acoustic, but that's it. You wouldn't be getting that. I mean, would the, would the lower, would the octave strings even be vibrating if the whole body of the instrument is not vibrating at all? You nailed it. That's it. Wow. That's, Interesting. Thought of it like that before to tell you the truth. So that's it. Um, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah I, have it, a, I have a podcast episode I did not too long ago. I think it was uh, Intonation Mastery number one. And yeah, I kind of talk about that stuff. It's really fascinating. And I mean, yeah, the acoustic instruments are just so alive. I mean, they really are, <laughs> so, you know, getting that feedback that, yes, I am in tune, um, just, you know, for something like what we're talking about is huge. And if you didn't have that, that would be a huge adjustment. Yeah. And that's why it is rare. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's rare. You're going to see a professional electric violin player that's not going through at least a couple different types of EQing as well as effects because yeah, you don't need reverb pedal for an acoustic violin. The reverb's in your fingers and in that wood. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so what else? What, what are other things? I mean, is, is there any effect with the bowing side of technique um, that we should be aware of here? Uh, um, if your classical bowing technique on an acoustic is absolutely superb, you'll be fine on electric. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, and, 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 um, I might know some people, uh, like myself whose bow, you know, weren't that focused on that before they went electric, mm-hmm. you will then pick up some habits on electric that if you do decide to venture and then go back acoustic, you have to relearn some things. I mean, uh, one thing that I'm thinking about, which I, I, you know, I've picked up an electric violet a couple times. I have not, I'm not an expert at all, but I can imagine that because, I mean, your volume is in some sense controlled by you, but then also you have volume pedals, right? And you have like all these effects potentially. So needing to develop that technique that would allow you to have all that, the different, the dynamics and the tone colors and stuff, probably that's not such a big deal, I would imagine. Right. That's exactly it. Because then you get, and that's one of your other adjustments is, oh, so it, when I need to come out on my solo part here, it's not just what I would do on acoustic, put a little more elbow into it or whatever. It's a matter of that. And also got to remember to turn on that pedal. I mean, you're in this, in essence, an electric guitar player at that point, especially if you're in a band or a project that requires you to play rhythm, violin and solo. That means with an electric, you're going to have to have settings, fine settings on whatever your setup is. That's my rhythm, violin volume. That's my solo violin volume. Interesting. So it's like this whole technical side of things that, yeah, it's, it's very much, um, it's, I mean, when we're playing an acoustic instrument, it's us and our instrument. And hopefully those, we get to the point where those are like fused together and, you know, one instrument, but 
yeah, I mean, a lot of external stuff that you have to deal with. Um, do you ever feel like that like distracts you from the music or from your audience? Or at this point, is it just pretty seamless for you and you just you do it and it's just second nature, not a big deal? I've had some longtime fans um, give me a hard time, especially the older crowd. I have I have some really good just people who have just been good enough to follow the band in all its uh, formations the last four or five years. And I will say some of the older ones who are like jazz, have the jazz ears, and they're not musicians, but they're music lovers. Mm-hmm. Some of the people in their 50s and 60s, um, one of them in particular, she's an absolute sweetheart and we joke about it all the time, but... She comes sometimes to shows with her husband and she'll give me a rating now about <laughs> how much she thinks I paid attention to the audience that night. And of course, she's older, so she's making the joke. She's like, you and those pedals, you and those pedals, you're always clicking on a pedal. <laughs> we want to see you. We want to see the violin. And it's, it's a really sweet back and forth. But it's really, Laurel, it's really interesting you said that. It absolutely does distract from the amount of time you could be spending connecting with the audience with your eyes. But also I won't lie. That's what I've come to enjoy from it. I'm a computer programmer by day. So Mm. it's just constant algorithms, you know? Yep. So working with an electric and all these pedals is an algorithm. It's like, okay, song number two, it's that, it's a middle Eastern composition. I got to press that pedal on that one off. What should should I try that setting tonight? So, (laughs) you know, nice. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it kind of gets, you know, that part of your brain that, you know, you use all day long engaged in this other, you know, really right brain creative side of things. And it would make sense that you'd be drawn to doing that. See, and this is the can of worms for any of your students. Tell them they are walking into a very addictive world. (laughs) Electric. And then because then there's 70 nowadays, there wasn't one back in my day, um, you know, (laughs) out it was like you get this one boss pedal it's what all the violinists are using done and done well now with technology and all this stuff there is a million ways of electric violin player you can get a sound that you're going for um so it's a big world now it's a really really big world and there's always and so that becomes the addiction it's like well should i try this one should i try that pedal should i try this uh, all in one pedal so it's not a it's not like seven different actual physical pedals but just like one computer system. <laughs> sure. So, you know, it can grow. So do they have like an auto-tune pedal and an anti-squeak pedal and all of this stuff now? My friend, if they had an auto-tune pedal, I would <laughs> by now. I'll tell you that. <laughs> can you imagine auto-tune pedal? Like, yeah, you could do anything. If they're geek podcast and it has a new product i think they got a new product yes yes i'll, I'll sort that one out we, we can we can team up on that one if you like <laughs> so tell me what you know those are kind of some of the downsides or challenges that there might be in playing electric what is like is there a certain experience or type of experience that you've had where you're just like i am so happy to be playing this electric violin this is the most amazing thing ever uh, you know, I've now been electric, quote unquote, with, with stages, uh, with playing on uh, stages with bands for about 11 years, I'd say. And in that 11 years, it was total awe and total appreciation. And then, of course, it just becomes something. It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. So take it for granted. I had one of those moments, which you beautifully described last year. Uh, MC Yogi, who's just one of the most amazing, he's a um, 
uh, conscious hip hop rapper, all really big with a yoga community, huge with the yoga festivals, all that stuff. And a genuine, genuine good soul. And he was in town for a um, yoga festival where he was the headliner. Uh, me and my trio were the background jazz trio um, for the opening night ceremonies. So we played the opening night ceremonies and long story short, got to talk to him and just in the flow, he's like, you should come up to on Saturday when I'm doing the headlining shows. Okay. Um, and it's, he's a pretty big act and he doesn't have an ego, but he's a big act. So, you know, it was just like, how are we going to do this? He's got a guy on a computer, his producer laying down beats and he does this Sanskrit rapping thing. Nice. Uh, I fit into that without, uh, now with my experience, knowing I don't want to be that guy, as I say, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I'm not here to do that. Um, long story short. Things just got so crazy by the time I found them, by the time I found the sound guy. He didn't even know I was sitting in. He's like, listen, I don't know where MC Yogi is, but you got like, you got three minutes. I'm like, three minutes? Okay. <laughs> Opened the pedal board, mm-hmm. fed, fed him the XLR from my preamp, tuned for 30 seconds, played four notes. He goes, I got it. You're done. He goes, I got no effects on you. He goes, I got your EQs just down the middle 12 o'clock. I said, great, works for me. And he was excited because when you could tell that look on his face when he heard, what do you play? Violin. (laughs) (laughs) Now to EQ this guy. So he was stoked. And when by him being stoked, I was like, I just got, I got up in three minutes. That would never happen. For me, that would never happen with acoustic. So that was one of those moments. Yeah, that's true. I mean... Yeah, obviously you had to tune and stuff, but um, I mean, just having having to mic an acoustic or having a pickup on acoustic, it's just, yeah, it's a whole nother thing. I mean, I guess you probably, it's, I, I'm hearing, you know, it sounds like you're probably, um, there's more control, I guess, in, in how you sound night to night, maybe. I mean, you know, probably room acoustics are still a factor, but... Uh, but it sounds like you have a lot more control over like just personally how you're sounding. Is that true? You can just kind of dial it in. Yeah, absolutely right. And it becomes even better, um, which I've seen a few violin, electric violinists do recently and acoustic violinists, which is find, um, find your own little amp that you're happy with and mm-hmm. you make life even more beautiful because then any sound system, theater, festival, a bar of five people – all you're do- I mean, if you find the amp that you like as an electric violinist or acoustic violinist plugging in with a pickup, if you find an amp that you like, you can play anywhere. Because if it's a coffee shop, you don't have a sound system. That is your sound system, your little Roland amp, you know? Right. But if you play a big stage, guess what? That Roland amp's probably got um, at least two XLR outs. You feed that to the sound guy, he's happy. He's getting that exact sound that you've always wanted, and he's just a portal. Nice. Or, I, you know, I know that some people, they mic amps. Is that, is that something, do you lose something in that? I just started kind of hearing about that and in a couple bands that I was sitting in with some of the guitarists were doing that. And it's like, huh, that seems, that seems strange, but you know, like why not just plug in? But, um, but yeah, maybe if you're looking for a certain sound and you're used to getting that certain sound from your amp, you do whatever you can to just maintain that, that consistency. Yeah, exactly. Uh, actually, um, I, I've never been a fan of that for violin, miking an amp. I think for violin, yeah, electric or acoustic, yeah, that's for me at least, that's never kind of worked out great. It's, it sounds great on guitar players, though, that's for sure. 
Interesting. Okay. So um, just kind of going back to just your playing and um, in improvising and, you know, I know that a lot of, um, a lot of beginners listen to the podcast, a lot of um, adults and, and people who, for the most part, I think are, are, are classically oriented, but they're trying to kind of stretch outside that box and maybe they're interested in improvising, but it scares the hell out of them. <laughs> Where did you start? I mean, you, you told me the story about, you know, being 18 and, you know, here we are in, in E flat or whatever. And, and you're just, you're just playing something. Um, has it just kind of organically evolved or are there certain kind of steps along the way and things that you could offer to the podcast audience as far as like, if you're just getting into this, like, where would you start? Fantastic question. And I can completely answer that from my experience. First of all, starting out improving, Yeah. I think you, as a classical player, if that's your background, absolutely. You're going to approach it of, okay, they're an E flat, just stay, you know, stay with my whole, whole half, whole, whole, whole half and I'm good. Mm-hmm. What do I play? Well, uh, when you're starting out, um, a frustration I've noticed beginners had, I had is, well, all I'm doing is holding along notes in the key of E major. Yeah, but what you don't realize you're doing is learning how to play with a drummer. I mean, if you've never, as a violin player, it's not, I don't know how to say it, it's not natural in your upbringing of that instrument to play with a drummer. Yeah, not at all. They've jammed. They've got the garage. Not all violin players always work. So it's like you have to just get used to that. That path. It's a complete. It's. I guess it's like going from um, uh, um, uh, what is it? Oil painting to charcoal. I guess you got to learn. It's still painting, but you're working with different sets of parameters now. So it's okay that in the beginning you feel like all you're doing is playing an E flat major scale. Stick with it. Then. It's up to you and what influences you, in my opinion, on where you want to take that. What I wish I had known when I was younger learning the improv world is pick a horse and ride that horse to the, to the winner line. <laughs> in other words, um, earlier on, just picked a style and mm-hmm. just work that because improving is a style. You can improv like Hendrix. You can improv like Dave Matthews Band. You can improv like John Coltrane. I mean, you pick. I mean, those are three different improv palettes. And the way they approach improv and the way the band approaches improv. So uh, pick a horse then. Once you're like used to that environment, you're like, okay, now I'm truly bored of playing the E-flat scale as as my improv. Okay, now go find a style because that will tell you mentally where you are. I've morphed and matured in my path where today I am not happy on a solo with how many notes I play. That used to be me, and I think a lot of any instrument jamming player thinks it's about the number of notes. Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of people think that's what jazz is. Not all the time is that what jazz is about. I don't think Coltrane was trying to impress you with the number of notes, but th- that's how he heard melody. That's, that's how the guy heard melody. So now these days... Um, I am big on and actually it's something I communicate with the band about our improving is you have to think of yourself and not in a bad way. You have to think of yourself as a loop machine. We are an organic loop machine. Nice. Two or three things that you like to do on this song, whatever your instrument and repeat the heck out of them. Just keep it coming, cycle them, but find three things, not 10 things. Um, and that's how I improv these days. So, if it's a piece that's got a melody melody, I'll play the melody. When it's truly time to go off, whether it's a Middle Eastern song or whatever, 
to truly like it's my space. I know it's my space to do it. The first thing, the first part is improv. Oh, what should I play? Which oh, those three notes. I just found three golden notes. Mm-hmm. That's your melody. Now try that in different timings, especially. I'm so blessed that I'm in a band that gets it, especially my rhythm section, to the point that th- it doesn't matter what time signature they're playing, and this is very Middle Eastern style, is I can play out of time, and it still sounds good. I can come back into time with them, and it sounds good. Hmm. I can, and so I try to find melodies where I can do that. I can play that melody in time, but then I can stretch that melody, so giving one note, six measures instead of one, and I can just play totally out of time with that melody, and then I come back to it. Interesting. So, so, so let me let me make sure that I have this right because I, I I think I, I get the idea, but um, but I want to make sure and for listeners. So, so your rhythm section has this set melody or set rhythm, I should say, going, and so you're saying like, okay, let's say your normal sort of melody of the song, right, is say two measures. And so you're saying that sometimes you might stretch that same melody over five measures or six measures or whatever and and like draw it out. Or I suppose on the same channel, you could go back and, and you could shorten it up. You could play it faster and fit that into a, a shorter uh, number of beats, say. is that Am I on the right track there? Absolutely. And okay. please... Pardon the 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 non vocal skills on a podcast, but let's say it's you're doing great. <laughs> bump 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 bump. Let's say that's something I found in that rhythm that I like playing with the band. Let's okay. say those. So bump 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 bump. Now, if the band is cooking, I can go bump 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 bump. It's the same notes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Got it. Awesome. Awesome. It's really cool when that happens too. Um, in you know any sort of a any sort of a band situation, and and especially when it's something that's set, you've gone through it enough times in the right timing. Uh, I shouldn't say right timing, but in the timing that we're used to. <laughs> and then yeah, either either stretching it out or speeding it up without actually changing the beat. You know, I think it kind of gives the illusion that maybe the beat's actually changing. And, um, you know, I geek out on that kind of stuff for sure. <laughs> so then do you ever take that melody and put a different, like take those same notes, but then go and put a different rhythm, like mix up the rhythm? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So take, and I, and I wouldn't be able to do it without the man playing it, but sure. that and, um, as my guitar player says, you can't, all you have to do is ever like add a note to an even time and you can build an odd time eventually. And now that's where it gets a little acid jazzy. But when you've been with a band a long time, they don't panic that I'm there in four and I might be playing a melody that I've added this note and all of a sudden it sounds like it's in seven four or five four um, because they're just going. They're, they're doing their thing and I'm conscious of not throwing, I don't, I don't have to worry about throwing them off. So nice. it's, it's a really, really great communication and a great band. And it takes uh, – and that's where it's not an individual practice thing. That's where you have to get with whoever you're playing with and come up with ways that you can speak that language. It is speaking a different language. And, you know, we – one of the most most common things we've used over the last eight to nine years, especially when we have the time, let's say, on the on a long trip to the next gig when we used to tour a lot, we don't anymore – 
um, is the old fish exercise, or at least what's rumored to be fish's uh, early day college days mm-hmm. music exercise, which is um, the drummer starts out playing something on the drums and the vocalist has to match what he did on his drums with his voice. Now the guitar player has to match that with the guitar. It's a really, you know, coming up with exercises like that helps you speak that language so that you can do these kinds of improvs. Interesting. So this is something you could like do in the car, you're saying like on that trip to the next gig. And is it like that old game of telephone where <laughs> like you essentially, you whisper in your partner's ear, like, I mean, you wouldn't have to whisper obviously, but, um, and then, you know, it's like you kind of see it morph or hopefully not morph in this sort of situation. But um, or are you like, you know, the drummer, say, starts off and then the other person comes in and matches and the other person comes in or does that make sense? Am I asking that in the right way? <laughs> not there to rush anybody. It's definitely not that. It's more the challenge and the fun for geek musicians like like you and me who love the math of it. Yeah. The fun of it is actually it not as you respond. Um is in what you come up with. Um, so the drummer plays his thing. You can pause for a second, but you know, once you get really good with your instrument and the people playing around you, you'll react pretty pretty quick to what he's doing and play it on the guitar. And then the whole idea is once you've made the full circle is for the time signature to change. Ah. So you and do the, the same thing or in a or different... Something. No, no the, the actual challenge of that exercise, I'm sorry, the, the goal of that exercise is, is picking up the timing changes. So not so much the notes you play, but now when it comes back to the drummer, he has to play something in five. Um, or maybe he'll, ch- excuse me, choose to play something in five, but he's not announcing he's in five. The guitar player has to be able to listen. Oh, that's five. Okay, I'll play. Let me play a lick in five. And then he'll play a lick in five. Then the, jazz, the saxophone player has to play a lick in five. So, I see. Nice. Well, I can imagine through that kind of an exercise, after a while... It's like, of course, you're listening to what the other person's doing, but in a sense, you're just getting really good at almost just picking up the energy of what they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Their pace, and that's how you start molding with other people around you is you, you're picking up you know, their pace, their, um, their accent, if you will, if you're talking about languages of communication, you know, the way they're saying that word or that beat in this sense. That's, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'll have to try that. <laughs> That sounds like a lot of fun. So it sounds like you've been, you know, you've had a few iterations of this band that you're in right now, but um, it sounds like overall you've been with some of these people for a long time. Is there a certain thing that you look for in a musical partner or a team? And like, how do you know when you have the right people to play with? Um, These days, the litmus test for me is... um, uh, uh, in, and it's just the position I've built my band and the business that is music to, which is how they react to a paid gig, how they react to a non-paid gig. Oh, interesting. If their spirit is the same in what they do on their instrument, 95% of the time, that's the, that's the person for this band. That's what we've noticed. <laughs> so you're saying if they put their if they put their full heart into it, whether they're getting paid $500 or a tip jar with seven dollars in it nailed it's like okay yeah awesome i like that (laughs) i like that i i know i know people on both sides of that equation and yeah i want to play with the people that it's like no matter what's going on if there's one person in the audience if there's a hundred people in the audience they're still 
pouring themselves into the music and whatever happens. Yeah, totally. I like that. So then there's also, it sounds like in your band, people are really, sounds like you've got a great team, you know, people are really good at, at juggling the solo stuff and, and just giving people space and room and, you know, for everyone to shine. And that's awesome. I'm wondering, um, as a violinist, where we often are the solo people, has that been a challenge for you figuring out how to, how to take a step back sometimes and do that more supporting role and, you know, while someone else is soloing. Now at 38, mm-hmm. that uh, adore and look forward to is when I don't have to solo. It's, I'm not putting down soloing, mm-hmm. just doing it for so long over the last five years. And I think Maybe they wouldn't say the same exact words, but I think they would all give you this message. The people who've played with me who I enjoy playing with and vice versa will tell you I, it's something I always say backstage to them. Um, the, uh, the joke in the band is they'll know I'm actually when I'm unhappy when I say, you did not shine enough in the last set. There was way too much me in this. <laughs> <laughs> love that balance. And, and why I love that is, and this is an advantage to the electric and pedals is, I am huge into these days without a bass player because that's one of the morphs we made. We don't really play with a bass player anymore because I made that decision because I thought that if I want my music to be more authentic to who I am, which is Middle Eastern and that's my blood, that's my homeland, yada, yada, not always does – not traditional, traditional, not classical, but traditional Middle Eastern music doesn't always have bass. In fact, that's the beauty of that music is that there's not this Western – you know, um, bass groove driving it. It's the mm-hmm. rest of the people driving it mm. and makes it that. So once I kind of cut out bass from the picture, um, live at least, I adore the times that I get to see how I can cover that space because that's been a big pressure on my guitar player ever since we cut that instrument out of our lineup is he really has to focus on his, especially on his acoustic guitar, playing chords that have a lot more low frequency rather than high. Sure, yeah. So I love it when I can take that burden off of him and I need to do that. And that has that comes with the double stops, especially on the low strings, mm-hmm. an octave pedal here or there. So um, I enjoy that. Like the, I, I, would, I would cherish a night where I only had two solos. And the music obviously stayed the same, the grooves and all that. Yeah, it seems like you're really, um, everything you've been talking about, it sounds like you're really team-oriented, which is my orientation I, I think is just so awesome and and really i mean for me the reason the reason to play music you know <laughs> to have be a part of that community vibe and you know it's the band it's the audience too you know everyone you connect with and um yeah i think that's that's really beautiful you know and it, it's so magical to back someone up and um you know, find ways to support what they're doing so that they can really shine. I think that that's, that's kind of where I am in in my mind when I'm doing that sort of stuff. It's like, what can I do? You know, because especially with the violin, you know, as we know, sometimes it's just like one drawn out note. And that that makes it, you know, that that sets up the the right atmosphere, the right energy to to make everything kind of come together. Exactly. And if I had to summarize all of that for me, it's in uh, three words, which is a band name, and that's Willie and Lobo, an underground radar 
band that's no longer together, but they were two guys. And this violin player, Laurel, will would, and they're on YouTube, will make you cry with wh- how he is able to turn the violin into a complete rhythmic supporting instrument. Nice. Incredible things. And and that was six years ago. I got introduced to that and then I was hooked. I'm like, the violin is a major supporting rhythmical aspect of a song. This is cool. I'm in. (laughs) That's awesome. And I've seen some YouTubes. You do some, like you do some pizzicato stuff. You're doing some different stuff there. Um, How did, did that just sort of manifest organically? Or were you having, were you influenced by certain artists that you saw doing that kind of stuff? And and I would never tell you this person invented this. It doesn't matter to me, but it is Boyd Tinsley of Dave Matthews. The first time I was a DJ in college and um, a request came over the request line to play Dave Matthews. And I was like, who's this band? This guy's voice is so annoying. What is this? <laughs> Classical with a lot of what happens after about four or five songs. I'm like, oh, my God, who is this? And long story short, once I started seeing them live and stage and seeing Boyd do that and have that be a big, this was the first time I've heard it. So that's why I say I don't know that he invented it. It's just the first time I had seen the violin react to music the way he was making it react just by plucking. And in especially in the early days, not much anymore. They're much more compositional these days. But in the early days, his pizzicato was like, the main melody of the song. And he was just pizzicatoing for the last 15 minutes of that jam. That's all he was doing. <laughs> awesome. Mentality. So that had me hooked. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. He does some awesome stuff. And yeah, that's awesome. It, it's um, it kind of actually brings me back to, to an early question that I had that I forgot to mention, but you were talking about how one of the things that you would do differently in you know starting off improvising is really i think you said you know pick pick a certain horse and ride it and you talked about like like picking a certain style is that more like picking a certain i mean i guess it could go both ways but picking like a certain genre and really going with that or more since you're improvising and it's really your own you know it's your own creation um picking more like an artist that maybe inspires you and and kind of emulating that sound. I mean, I guess eventually, you know, that's just a, a launching pad for your own thing. But um, how how would you how would you exactly approach that at this point? I think that um, I think it's whatever it is for the artist trying to find their voice in improvising. <laughs> it's been um, for that song, pick a style, and obviously, like you said before, if with a band you've been with eight years, you would play that song ten thousand times. So you get to know that song. So, for instance, on Middle Eastern, on our Middle Eastern jams, when I know the song has three heads, one chorus before the true improv part, I know that song well enough now to know when I do go to improv, I got to totally think what I call, um, uh, I call it Mozart, but obviously it's just my, um, my key to that world is just real long and thoughtful melodies. Mm. Many notes, just like, because that's what Middle Eastern, it's the Middle Eastern music is always crying. The violin is always crying in Indian music. So Mm -hmm. more crying rather than babbling, babbling, babbling. (laughs) Now for for folky pop tunes or, you know, when we play weddings, we do have to play some cover songs. Yeah. And then I tap into, okay, say a lot here, (laughs) say a lot here and say it quick. (laughs) Right. Okay. 
So it's so more it's more like within each piece that you're playing with, uh, that you're playing in, that you're improvising over. Um, we have we have one piece that, I mean, we are not a flamenco band. We could not even hold a candle to flamenco. It's just that's what the closest thing it sounds to this one composition. So um, I remember what a flamenco player told me a long time ago when I sat in with him. He goes, "Listen, man, <laughs> flamenco." is not Middle Eastern music. Middle, <laughs> Middle Eastern music, when it's your turn to solo, you guys like to come in the door and say, hey, I'm here. How are you? These long, drawn-out thoughts. Mm -hmm. he, Menko, you got to kick in that door, come in, have your paella, have your wine, and get out. <laughs> <laughs> and so if we're doing a song like that, that's what I kind of tap into is, is like textures like that. So that's how, what I tap into. I see. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really picking up on the vibe of what's, what's there or what you're creating. And, um, you know, the, the channeling, I mean, as, as weird as it might sound to some people, it's like whatever kind of key words for me that, you know, and, and for students that can kind of set that light bulb off where it's like, okay, now I know, I know what vibe I need to create here. Um, that could be so helpful. <laughs> Triggers. Yeah, exactly. So what's your relationship uh, to practicing like at this point? Uh, practicing is on stage with the band. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, no, it is. And that's only just because of life and plans. I used to do music full time and then it became a supplemental living, which is where it is. So when it's a supplemental living and you're doing something else to make your living, you obviously can't as spend as much time with that, what I miss having the time for, which is like just you played four hours and it's midnight and you had no idea where the time went. Yeah. Uh, I do miss those days. But on the other side, I'm very blessed that we have such a band and whether we're playing for a wedding or a theater show or just, you know, at a venue, a regular old venue that um, I, I say that in jest that that's my practicing. But we're so good in the sense that we're, we're, we're so are. Uh, a service to the music that we're playing that, um, yeah, that's my practice. That's, that's the, that's where the improvs come out. Um, um, you, you're not working on technique necessarily on those nights, but you are definitely working on your improv and your scale knowledge and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I just ask cause you know, a lot of us will be move into whether, you know, we call ourselves professional or not. I mean, you know, I think if we're, if we're doing, if we're spending a lot of time doing this, we're playing out, you know, we can all fly the professional flag as far as I'm concerned, but it's like, I think a lot of times, yeah, it is, it, 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 there is that shift that happens. It might happen, I think generally pretty gradually, but to where, you know, we're not at home practicing techniques where, you know, out there, um, really honing our, like you said, our improv skills or, you know, how to play cohesively in the band or, you know, what our stage presence is. And you just can't do a lot of that at home, you know, not that we're not needing to spend time practicing at home. And, and, uh, but uh, yeah, I just find that it's more fluid. And there's been times when I think, gosh, you know, it's kind of like I used to be in there for hours every single day and it's just it's different now and so I, it's just interesting for me to hear other people's experience i think we're in the same boat there i think we're saying the same thing yeah exactly it's is you know 
whatever, like you said, maybe reach a saturation point. And obviously that's not to say if we're working on some challenging piece in seven, eight, you're not going to, you're not going to go and do that on, on stage. Everyone in, at least in our crew, it, it, you know, we through Dropbox, drop off the song, we're in this song, everyone does what they can on their own. Yeah. Uh, and then when we get together for that one practice before the big gig, usually, hey, let's try that new one out. If it sounds good enough, then it, it goes to stage. So, you know, there's, there's, there, I guess there's bursts of like true quote unquote practicing. Um, but yeah, definitely not as consistent as it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that that's really natural. I mean, everyone that I've talked to about and asked that question to, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, you know, and of course, you know, if we're playing classical music and we're needing to prepare something for a symphony performance or whatever, um, there will be that time that we really need to, you know, woodshed it out in our room. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it just becomes really, um, really personal, I think. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that gives the beginner encouragement or not, but, um, you know, I think you probably agree with me. You definitely have to do the time in the beginning. <laughs> That's the beauty of what you do. You're, you're, you're one of the, uh, you're one of the gift givers of ice. As I say, not only do you do this and play and, 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 and have it as your art and craft, but you're a teacher too. And that's huge. Um, and that's huge for those beginners because yes, that's where you grit your teeth. You woodshed as the jazz guys say, you do that in the beginning, you do that with classical training or whatever your background training is. And yeah. And then if you get to a stage where you're exploring and not having as much time, as long as that time in the beginning was the, those dues were paid, then you're good to go. Yeah. You really set that foundation. Any encouragements for a beginner or an intermediate player who's, you know, they enjoy doing this. They're they're starting off on this trail, and they don't really know where it's going to fit in their life yet. Yeah, I think um, it's been a long time since I taught kids, but I remember um, when I did, um, or and beginners that were a bit older. Either case, uh, and I think I still stick to this. I'll, um, which is, yeah, you know, and I it, I guess it depends on age because I think it's a youth thing to want to know well where is this going. Mm-hmm. As an adult, obviously, you reflect and you do what you would tell kids normally, which is it doesn't have to necessarily be about an endpoint, but realize that if you actually like it, that has to be the first flag. Like, do you like doing this because your parents wanted you to be a violinist, whatever the case may be? Right. Authentic to you, it'll find its place because I'll tell you, these days, I, I and I don't, I, maybe this is, this is for a reason, but out of the woodwork, like just time after time, this year, I'd say eight times gone to a party, gone to someone's house, everyone kind of leaves and the person's uh, party who it is, he's married, he's got two kids. And then you're like, hey, what's that drum set in there? Oh, I, I play some drums. And then you're like, okay, well, it's obviously not a major focus in his life. Um, and then you get to hear this person play and you're like, good Lord, you're like one of the best drummers I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> It's his getaway. Obviously, it was serious to him at some point, and he put the time in, and you can just, you know, when you can just tell someone's got the chops, you know? Yeah, totally. Playing every week at a bar, but man, they're, they still got it. And hey, this is where they go when uh, they've had a long day with the kids and they're home from work, and wow, listen to them play. So, yeah, that's really important to remember. I mean, I think, especially in the classical violin world, there's, you know, this idea that unless we're great, unless we're that soloist out there 
playing, you know, with major symphonies, we're not good enough to really be playing. And it's, you know, what I really try and, and put out there through the podcast or my private teaching is like, there's a place for all of us. If you enjoy doing this and you want to express yourself through this instrument, if it calls to you, there is a place for you in this world. Mm-hmm. And even if it's, even if it becomes your therapy, that's a great thing. <laughs> that's even better, really. <laughs> If you can become a better person through playing this instrument and, and learning how to play this instrument and express yourself through this instrument, it has done its job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. totally. We're lucky as violinists because I think it comes back to something we said earlier that um, we're lucky that, and I'm not saying other instruments don't do this, but I will just say the reaction, the the dialogue that goes on between us and this amazing piece of wood is just, it's it's incredible. It is incredible. And, you know... Yeah, it's it's the greatest gift to be able to share that with other people. And, you know, even if it's just, you know, your family, you know, playing at Christmas dinner or whatever. Um, yeah, it really is a gift. And uh, I'm wondering for you, I mean, you know, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of changes going on in our world right now. And I, I know that for myself, I take comfort in the fact that, you know, I can always go back to my instrument and anything that I'm feeling, you know, maybe I'm feeling really depressed about something that's going on, you know, and, but I can, I can channel it through the music. I can come up with, you know, a new piece and, and, and write something based on that heartache that I might be feeling or that joy that I might be feeling. And for you, what, what does music, what does music show you that, that, you know, what optimism can it give you? Um, Oh, that's a great question. So many ways to go. I would say um, uh, it is constantly showing me whether I'm listen to it or not or take its advice. If we're talking about music as an entity of some sort, mm-hmm. um, is it's uh, is that uh, it, patience is absolutely something that just you know it in any format you play, whether it's patience with yourself, patience of learning how to. Uh, listen like that real listening thing you do as a musician where you cross this boundary you're like I thought I was listening before but now I'm really listening mm-hmm. for everyone it's it's shown me many things and and just to um just to be on the same page with you you know Saturday night we had this we had the trio gig at a nice little uh Spanish restaurant which we play at regularly and it's a symphony crowd there's a symphony across the street so people are about to go and watch you know 4 hours of Mozart or some Wagner symphony and this place is known as the place to come before and after mm. and goodness gracious you know all of us uh, channel things differently and process them differently but I did not feel like playing that night after what 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 has gone on recently, and I just I just didn't feel like it. And I was actually really close that day, really close, um, knowing I would have to apologize profusely. But like for the first time, maybe in ten years, canceling a gig the day of, like you just don't do that, you know. Yeah. And I've never, but I was just like, I have nothing to give. I'm going to be in a bad mood. I'm going to be sad, upset, and depressed. And then that one little voice says, you know. Don't do that to your guitar player or drummer. Maybe they're looking forward to coming out tonight. So do it for them, all right? So mm. you get mentality. And man, after that four hours, and it's not a steady paid gig, we make a percentage of the bar, but that crowd, this symphony crowd, and the words they said to us, not from an ego perspective, but no one had to speak of the, what we're all going through 
you know, right now, this yeah. morning. Nobody had to say actually why. It was the way they came up that night and said, man, guys, I really love your music. I love how you guys play it. I love that you guys interact, the way you guys smile at each other. Whatever the compliment, I can't remember them. And it was just like, oh, you naughty, sneaky music. Once again, you've taught me. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. And we've covered so much ground, interesting topics. And really enjoyed Laurel. I love your podcast. I'm grateful to have met you and uh, have you on on, on my podcast as well. And uh, you're one of the gift givers. So keep it up. And it's it's really a pleasure to know you and have been on your podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. So tell us, um, tell us where we can find you both your website and your podcast. And um, where can people see you perform? <laughs> uh, we've, we're, we're building next year's schedule, although it is, uh, it's, it's going to be lighter than usual as I'm going to be a father for the first time in May. So Yay. exciting. Um, getting all the little violins ready. Um, nice. the website is B violin. So the letter B violin, the word, the one word B violin.com. All our schedule is on there. Um, yeah, the podcast is a is a it's a interesting experiment going on and having a great time with it and just seeing where it goes is uh, philosophicalbeat.com and um, those are really my two places on the net. Not not too much of a social media person, but uh, that's where you can listen to us and see our schedule and there's a bunch of videos up there as well. Awesome. Laurel, thank you for everything. Yeah, so welcome. Be well. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bauman Saram or B Violin. Go to his website, bviolin.com and check out his podcast, the Philosophical Beat Podcast there on iTunes. And uh, hopefully you'll get to see his band maybe at a festival or um, go check him out on YouTube. We're going to hear a track here at the end. It is an old Turkish Turkish melody. Um, It's called Shadia. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, very nice. Has that Middle Eastern flair that we've been talking about. Again, I'm Laurel Thompson. My website is laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. You can find me on Facebook, Laurel Thompson Music. And I made what, over 300 likes now. That was my, my goal for the end of the year. Didn't quite make that on New Year's, but I have it now. So going for 400, go and like my page. You can also go and like the new Dan and Laurel page. Um, This is my Canadian uh, musical partner. And uh, you can go to my website and check out our tour dates there. And um, if you go to my website as well, you can check out the new Dan and Laurel page with that um, SoundCloud player with all those tracks that I overdubbed before before we went on tour. Now we have video on YouTube um, from that tour. So lots of good, exciting stuff. And then my CD is available on Bandcamp for download and uh, should be now available on CD Baby as well. It's called Light and Shadow. If you just search Laurel Thompson on either bandcamp.com or on CD Baby, you should come across it. And I'd very much appreciate your support. Um, I had a, a host of really awesome musicians playing on the CD. Uh, Joe Craven, Scott Nygaard, um, this really great Dober pr- player, uh, Mike Witcher, 
um, Dan Robbins, Barry Phillips, John Reichman, who am I missing? Um, Dale Mills, Marty Atkinson, some Santa Cruz locals, and then some people from from further afield. And um, I hope you go and, and listen to that and enjoy that. And if you have any comments or questions, or um, you'd like to take some violin lessons with me via Skype, please send me an email, laurel at laurelthompson.com. Again, L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. All right, that's it for today. Please enjoy this track, and I'll see you next time. Happy practicing. I can't play under the... <laughs> 